Hello, I'm Naina Sabarwal Batra. Welcome to Money Meets Mission, a podcast brought to you by AVPN, the largest social investing community in Asia. I'm excited to host leaders from across the business, philanthropy and impact investing worlds to share stories of how they are putting their resources to work, tackling some of the largest and most complex social and environmental issues facing Asia today. One of the critical decisions we made was really reframing the relationship we had with the communities we were serving. The foundation of collaboration is co-creation. I think it's important to kind of underline what is truly systems change. I think the dominant paradigm of the social sector has been for us to look for problems, look for hurt, and that of course is important, but I think it shouldn't be the dominant paradigm. In this episode, Matthew Bishop, the author of the best-selling book Philanthrocapitalism, will be speaking with key practitioners who have been leveraging powerful partnerships to create systems change. Tim Hanstead, the CEO of Chandler Foundation, Vishnu Swaminathan, the Vice President of Ashoka, Debbie Ong Din, the co-founder of Proximity Designs, and Neelam Chipper, the co-founder of Industry Crafts Foundation, are all inspiring groups of leaders building a more sustainable tomorrow for this region we call home. Thank you. Uh, Vishnu, I wonder if you could talk a bit about what you've seen working in terms of systems change, innovation, and how to structure collaboration to help make that happen? I think before we talk about systems change, I think it's important to kind of underline what is truly systems change. And in, you know, in my experience, we believe that the seed of systems change actually begins when a social entrepreneur or any entrepreneur for that matter begins to let go, right? Begins to let go of the ego of the idea. Meaning that's the fundamental beginnings of a systems change. What do I mean by that is you have to move beyond your own organization to be able to cause systems change. Now, when you when you stop scaling your organization or when you start when you stop measuring your success by the size of the organization, then what do you do? Right? Meaning the question is then what do you focus on? So, you know, then you start getting completely driven by the impact of the idea rather than your own organization. And then you start to alter or shift or transform the system's characteristics. You know, the system which is surrounding the idea, you begin to transform them. And obviously that requires collaboration. Now, there are various manifestations of uh, systems change, what we have seen. And obvious, the most obvious one which everybody knows about is when you can change a policy. And you work with the government to change policy. That's the most obvious one. Then obviously, you know, the other ones that are connected ones are, you know, when you uh, make sure your idea can be independently replicable, where many, many people are able to take your idea and run with it. Or, for example, you change the market dynamics by bringing various different stakeholders, or we call them as value chain uh, innovations. And obviously, the last one I just want to kind of mention is when you can really enable a lot of people to come come and join your movement, right? So, and then, you know, you start transforming mindsets of the society. Yeah, thank you very much. And I, th- I think just to build on that point about policy and government, you know, I think anyone dealing with in the COVID-19 uh, 
pandemic arena at the moment is very conscious of a lot of government money, but also a lot of government um, need out there. Um, and I just wonder what you've learned about working, particularly in the policy and working with government area and any examples of success that you've seen in the past that could inform people uh, grappling with these challenges today. Sure. You know, um, my favorite example is of uh, Takeshi-san from Japan. You know, he's an Ashoka fellow and a social entrepreneur, and he created an organization called CarePro. You know, what he did was, you know, it's connected to COVID because it's so important about early diagnosis, right? So even early, uh, early days, you know, in 2010 or something, he saw that the need for healthcare checkups was so important, right? So then what he did was he created a, where, you know, he created this ability to get your health checkups done for like six US dollars in street corners, train stations and department stores. And, you know, in 2014, the government actually picked it up and made a legislation based on that for getting self-health checkups. And, you know, now there are 1,600 competitors in Japan. You know, so he actually took the idea and others copied it, right? So that's the beauty of systems changing. The world's ability to achieve the SDGs is going to depend much more on government and much more on markets, on business, than it will the social sector. Governments and the business sector are much more important players than philanthropists and NGOs for creating good in the world or creating ill in the world. So I believe that recognizing that um, at, at the at the beginning is is important, and that's not to say that um, that the social sector isn't important or that we should all give ourselves a pass. Not not at all. In fact, the social sector has a very very important role to play. But I think we need to change the dominant paradigm. Because I think the dominant paradigm is of the social sector has been for us to look for problems, look for hurt, go try to address it with direct service delivery. And and that, of course, is important. I'm not saying it's not important, but it sh I think it shouldn't be the dominant paradigm. In most cases, those problems are the result of government failure or market failure. And I think we need to place much more focus and make the dominant paradigm of the social sector, how can we help government work better, more efficiently, and how can we help markets work more efficiently? And I think if we start doing that, um, we, we will do a better job of meeting our potential as, as a social sector. Well, no, I was intrigued, you know, particularly in the light of that, that um, you know, which I, I think is a very important point. But you, the Chandler Foundation, have recently supported Catalyst 2030, which is a social entrepreneur-led movement focused on achieving the SDGs. I mean, particularly given where you, what you just said, I mean, why Catalyst 2030 and why now? Yeah, we need better um, styles and platforms for collaboration. And so, Catalyst 2030, which um, Many may not be aware of is a is a social entrepreneur led movement um, for catalyzing change to accelerate progress on the SDGs through a systems change approach, and they are looking at collaboration, not just collaboration among social entrepreneurs, collaboration across sectors with government, with business, 
with donors. And so if you don't know about Catalyst 2030, take a look at the website. Take a, it's an exciting new movement. Collaboration does not happen overnight. It starts from the spark of a brilliant idea. But for it to really take off, we need more than that. Tim Hanstead, CEO of Chandler Foundation, has taught, written, and been involved in numerous collaboratives. He will share the key ingredients of what is needed to make collaboration work. Let's dig a little deeper into Tim's question. How can we help governments and markets work more efficiently? Debbie Ongdin, co-founder of Proximity Designs, may be able to answer this well. She is one of Myanmar's leading rural development experts and has led her team to build Myanmar's largest agricultural services platform to help small family farms be productive and profitable. Debbie explains how she was able to create catalytic impact in an area where the government and private sectors were unable to step up. I just wanted to say that when we started in Myanmar about 16 years ago, that um, one of the critical decisions we made was really reframing the relationship we had with the communities we were serving. We wanted to have a relationship where we were equal, basically. You know, it's a, it really has to do with power dynamics, transparency, and accountability. In, the, in our case, rural farm families um, as customers who have choice and dignity, and they decide whether what we're providing is, um, you know, something of value to them. And we get immediate feedback and we're held accountable. Another area was the ability to scale was because they're customers. We are, um, we have our own earned um, income as well, as well as grants. Um, and we're able to have a more sustainable financial um, organization that can, um, that can um, grow at scale. And so we've been able to now serve over 700,000 um, farm families with products and services. In our case, we saw where both the government sector and the private sector were failing to provide, you know, essential products and services to um, the huge farm, small farm families that were um, needing basic services. And it was, they were completely neglected by both sectors. Um, and so we felt that it was very important for our work um, to be able to treat people as customers and to, um, and to have our earned income so we could scale. So um, you have used the term uh, market maker to describe what Proximate does. Can you just elaborate a bit more on how uh, that role, that way of seeing yourself in this context helps um, to deliver scale? Yeah, and so when we saw this um, market that didn't exist of uh, essential products and services that farm families needed, just basic things like irrigation systems, and so um, we said, well, how can we imagine and create a market um, and show people that there's huge demand for this so that other suppliers come in? Um, so that is, you know, how markets are made to where we were able to stimulate demand or show that there's demand for these products and services. And so today, 16 years later, there are other suppliers of, of you know, small irrigation systems and products who, you know, have um, piggybacked on, on the, uh, the market that was built. And now there's um, a few suppliers of that. 
Um, and so I think it's the ability to, um, as a social enterprise, to see our role as not only creating and designing um, the products themselves and in putting them in the market, but also um, uh, allowing innovation so that other suppliers are come in and, and can um, benefit from that. Yeah. Neelam, um, what, what, what do you see in terms of new types of NGO collaborations? Um, are you seeing anything that, that makes you optimistic? And I, and I will say this to all the panelists. To, to what extent is, the, is this COVID experience that we're going through changing the dynamics and actually creating maybe a, a, a bigger window of opportunity for donors and social entrepreneurs to, to have a say, get a, get a seat at the table with governments and business to actually get better collaborations? Yeah, absolutely, Matthew. I think one of the things that's going to be repeated really often is that in every crisis, there is an opportunity. Earlier, I think as a society, we cherished that, that whole capitalist thought of go alone, go fast. But for organizations like ours, which are always under-resourced, because we're always trying to take on too much with very little resources, so things are moving along slowly. But I think post-COVID, post uh, movements like Catalyst 2030, the learning curve has dramatically grown. I'll just call out two things here and stop. One was on Tim's point on the market. I think that is so critical. For about seven years, we've been in a relationship with IKEA. Corporates are more and more and more ready. I think post-COVID, business, big business, is something that needs to be reached out in a co-creative and collaborative fashion. The foundation of collaboration is co-creation. Right? So you've got to co-create things together. Collaboration doesn't happen. You say, this is my idea, come join me. No, that's not going to happen. So the co-creation process is what needs to be looked at yeah, with great intensity. How do we all co-create together? In India, we've initiated a movement called Creative Dignity post-COVID. It's brought together uh, a thousand of professionals, but there is a great movement out. And overnight, in about a month, we've had a bunch of fantastic volunteers, all young designers, pushed out a diagnostic to more than 2,000 grassroots organizations. And in a month, we have access to 200,000 rural artisans. This would have been unthinkable, unthinkable earlier. So this is the power of collaborative movements. I just want to kind of go, uh, uh, you know, just add on to what Neelam was saying. You know, one principle I would really like to point out is, please try to engage unusual allies. You know, go beyond the usual suspects, right? And the usual suspects are companies, the governments, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But how do we go beyond them to unusual suspects? I call them unusual allies. And when we talk about unusual allies, you know, you, you never know. Uh, uh, you know, a quantum uh, physicist might be able to solve a community problem. Have you thought about that? Like, you know, how do you actually get the government to work with you? Have you worked with an economist? You know, et cetera, et cetera. I can go on and on and give you examples. But one of the key things to understand here is we need to have a midterm to a long-term perspective. You know, you cannot do multi-stakeholder in a very short-term perspective. It's not going to work. And my, my um, uh, you know, ex experience has been that we have to make 
multi stakeholder engagement as a core strategy not just an add on you know the way you work has to change and inherently to change it you have to make it a core strategy companies are now like what neelam was saying companies are more and more willing to do that you know uh, governments are willing to do that and they are willing to listen to uh, social organizations and social organizations are also willing to change that so i think that is the core principle i would like to place here matthew right that's very helpful tim um you know you you we already talked about how the sdgs we were not on track to achieve them even before the covid pandemic and you know as we think about building back better out of this crisis i mean are there specific thoughts that you have on how uh there is opportunity uniquely in this crisis to build those kind of collaborative approaches that we've been talking about i think there is i think that um as neelam said one of the advantages we have from this um pandemic is that the pandemic has exposed the weaknesses in our systems and um i think highlighted the need to to build up stronger systems for the long term you think about uh personal protective equipment and there certainly as a as a ngo one could think about an ngo providing ppe directly um but if you think about bigger systems and who is providing that and depending on the on the country but the governments are uh, can play a much bigger role in providing ppe and when you think about well the government is procurement policies may be broken or inefficient non transparent and not doing a good job of providing those ppes we could uh more of us ought to be thinking about how do we change government procurement policies it you know it's a, it seems like a kind of an obscure thing but a third of government spending comes through government procurement and when that government procurement is non transparent or inefficient or corrupt um we have real problems and and there is real opportunities for us now that the pandemic and other things have have exposed the weaknesses of the systems i i can't help but think about things going on in the country where i live right now in terms of black lives matter we have instances of of police brutality of course that have been going on forever they're they're we're becoming more aware of them now because everyone now has a video camera in their pocket these are structural problems it's not a problem of having to change police behavior in Minneapolis by a couple of bad police this is built within the structure of the systems and i'm for one and am encouraged by the response we're getting not just to the pandemic but to things that it, these injustices that we're seeing around police brutality and and racism here it is that type of pressure on the systems and getting people to think about how do we reform rebuild strengthen change these systems we are in an opportune moment and we we best take advantage of it thank you for listening to the first episode on our podcast collaborating to achieve the sdgs this discussion was adapted from the avpn virtual conference 2020 which brought together more than 7500 people in the midst of the covid-19 crisis to discuss the mounting issues facing asia and how our community of social investors 
have a critical role to play to catalyze solutions. I hope these conversations have sparked some ideas on how to work more innovatively with unusual allies and reimagining engagement with governments. You may watch the full recording of the panel discussion at avpn.asia/webinar. If you would like to connect more deeply with AVPN social investment community, you can reach out to us at knowledge@avpn.asia to explore opportunities. We would like to thank our lead partners Chandler Foundation, Stockholm Environment Institute and Idan Prize Foundation for their continuous support. See you at our next episode where we dive deeper into the social investor's role around systems change.